Good morning. Good morning. It's good to see everyone here this morning and lots of conversations and fellowship and, uh, and it's a wonderful thing and I'd just like to welcome everyone here this morning. I'd like to particularly uh, welcome uh, Melanie Edwards and it's good to see her here this morning and uh, make sure you uh, say hi to Melanie sometime this morning if you know her uh, or if you don't for that matter. Uh, let's see here. We have a number of announcements in the in the bulletin, and a lot of them relating to uh, Easter services, and uh, so just kind of uh, keep that in mind in our sunrise service at uh, six o'clock, with uh, followed by our uh, Easter breakfast and worship service at ten thirty, and uh, as it says in here. Uh, there'll be no Sunday school on Easter. Uh, any other announcements this morning that need to be made? Right, and that would be uh, uh, that would be uh, on um, the Thursday before uh, Easter, uh, which will actually take the place of our uh, uh, prayer meeting. Any other announcements? Yes, Donna. I'm sorry, I was visiting, but <laughs> did you mention that the sign up sheet for the breakfast in the back? Uh, no, I didn't. I did uh, mention uh, that we we're having the breakfast, but there will be a sign up for any that weren't able to hear. Uh, there will be a sign up sheet for the Easter breakfast. Uh, if you'd like to bring something, uh, if, if you're not able to bring anything, just bring yourself. And uh, we always have a great uh, time of fellowship and uh, the service will be right outside on the side lawn and the breakfast to follow inside and uh, we always have a pretty good turnout so love to see lots of people there all right let's uh, go to the lord in prayer our dear lord and heavenly father we thank you for this uh, opportunity that we have to be here today and we thank you for your goodness and your love and and that you are with each one of us every day in each of our situations. And you know each one of us. And it says in your word that even the hairs of our head are numbered. Each one of us. And uh, so you know the situations that we are going through. And whether we're on a, uh, having a mountaintop experience and things are going well. Or, or maybe if we're in the valleys. You know that. You are the uh, great shepherd. and You guide us. And we pray that you would help us to trust in you in everything that we do. That, uh, and that you would guide us and give us wisdom. <laughs> and that we would live our lives uh, in service to you. And that we would do the things that are pleasing to you. We pray that you would watch over our service this morning. We pray that you would bless it. We pray that your Holy Spirit would speak through Ian this morning and that uh, we would have a, a, a joyful time this morning in your house. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 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 <clears throat> All right. Our scripture reading this morning will be found in Psalm 95, if you'd like to follow along with me, Psalm 95. <clears throat> Psalm 
Psalm 95. Come, let us sing for joy to the Lord. Let us shout aloud to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before him with thanksgiving and extol him with music and song. For the Lord is the great God, the great King above all gods. In his hands are the depths of the earth, and the mountain peaks belong to him. The sea is his, for he made it, and his hands formed the dry land. Come, let us bow down in worship. Let us kneel before the Lord, our Maker, for he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. Today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts as you did in Meribah, as you did that day in Massa in the desert, where your fathers tested and tried me, though they had seen what I did. For 40 years, I was angry with that generation. I said, they are a people whose hearts go astray, and they have not known my ways. So I declared an oath in my anger, they shall never enter my rest. And may the Lord bless the reading of his word today. And if you would turn with me now, we're going to sing in uh, number 56 in your blue book, To God Be the Glory. And let's stand and sing all three verses. Let's sing it right now. transport when Jesus we see. 
Seated. Good singing this morning. I like that. And uh, now if the ushers would come forward for the morning offering and our doxology uh, this morning as the ushers come forward will be uh, also it's uh, 8, 816 in your uh, in your hymnal or it's on the back of your uh, um, bulletin. So that is our doxology this morning. We give the Bathainon. <laughs> Amen. And if you'd remain standing, we'll sing Psalm 4 in the uh, green book in front of you. And that'll be closer to the back of the book. But Psalm 4. Will hear me when. 
Thank you. Good morning, church. Good singing this morning. We're going to take some time now to go to the Lord together in prayer. Let's go to the Lord together. Father, we come to you and we pray in the words of 1 Samuel 2, there is none holy like you, Lord, for there is none besides you. There is no rock like you, our God. You're a God of knowledge, and by you actions are weighed. You kill and you bring to life. You bring down to Sheol and you raise up. You make poor and you make rich. You bring things low and you exalt. You raise up the poor from the dust. You lift the needy from the ash heap to make them sit with princes and inherit a seat of honor. For the pillars of the earth are yours, God, and on them you have set the world. You will guard the feet of your faithful ones, but the wicked shall be cut off in darkness. You, Lord, will judge the ends of the earth, and you will give strength to Christ your King, and you will exalt the the horn of your Messiah forever. Father, we come to you this morning because you are God, you are the king, and you reign in righteousness and holiness and in patience and in love. And we come to you this morning, and the first thing that comes to mind as we enter your holy presence is is our need. As we look to you, we remember we are but dust, that we all have clay feet, that we're sinners in need of forgiveness. We confess, Father, even in our hearts and our minds and our actions this week, we've sinned and we've done wrong. We haven't listened to your word as we ought. We've rebelled against you and we haven't obeyed the voice of you, our God. And so we'll take a moment now to confess our sins unto you silently. We thank you, Father, that you have made a way for us to be in your holy presence through the blood of Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that you have made a way that we can be forgiven through the blood of Jesus Christ. That in his death and in his resurrection, we who come to you by faith, we come to you in repentance, 
can be cleansed of our sin, forgiven, made whole, made even righteous by the blood of Christ and the righteousness of Christ. We thank you, Father, that we are no longer strangers and aliens, we who have believed, but we have been made a part of the family of God, sons and daughters, co-heirs with Christ, a part of the family of God seated at the family table, not because of anything we have done, but solely on the righteousness of Christ. We thank you, Lord, for the great blessings of the gospel, and it's only in Christ that we come to you this morning. And he is more than enough. We thank you, Father, for our Lord Jesus. We come to you, Father, with much to be thankful for. We thank you that we live in a, in a nation in which there is peace. We thank you, Lord, that... Um, for the blessings of home and of family. We thank you for the blessings of friends and of neighbors. We thank you for the blessing of this church family. We thank you for the blessing of the food that you put on our tables, for the sun that you caused to rise. We thank you for the pillows we sleep on. We have much to be thankful for. We acknowledge, Lord, that every good gift comes from you, the Father above. Father, we thank you so much for all that you've given us, and we thank you again for this opportunity we have to be together to worship you. We pray that you'd be at work among us. There is there's no higher prayer, nothing we want more for our gatherings together than that you would be at work, and that you would speak to our hearts, and that you would grant us repentance, that you would soften our hearts, that you'd even pierce us with your word, Lord, that you might heal us. You'd grant us a greater knowledge of the gospel of Jesus, that we'd be led to, to love Jesus more and more day by day, to rejoice more and more in, in you, that you would be our greatest joy. We pray, Lord, especially as we come to your word later, that, that you would speak to us and that we would respond, that you'd grant us the grace to respond in, in faith and obedience. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. We'll stand together and sing out of the, the green folder number nine, Speak, O Lord.
Open your Bibles with me this morning to Genesis chapter 3, uh, Genesis chapter 2, rather, Genesis 2, and we'll be looking at the first three verses of Genesis 2. We live in a restless society and in a restless age, and in an age of exhaustion. So many of the people around us are weary and haggard, either wearied with constant busyness, never able to take a break, or, or wearied with the constant stimulation of a smartphone world, <laughs> where the noise never seems to stop. Particularly, the, the younger generation in our time, the cell phone generation, the smartphone generation, young people today are more anxious and more depressed than any generation on record. We're a restless society, an anxious society, an exhausted society. We're a people in need of rest. And really it's not unique just to us in our day we, all of us as human beings in a fallen world, long for real rest. And this morning in Genesis 2, just in the first three verses, we're going to read God's invitation to us to rest. 
real rest. And what I hope to do is to begin here in Genesis 2 and then to trace this idea of rest through all the rest of the scriptures and to see how through the Sabbath God invites us to rest in him and to find real rest in the person of Jesus Christ. Let's read our passage together this morning and then we'll pray. Genesis 2 and we'll read the first three verses. Thus the heavens and the earth were finished, and all the host of them. And on the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done. And he rested on the seventh day from all his work that he had done. So God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it God rested from all his work that he had done in creation. This is God's word. Let's pray. Father, we come to you this morning with restless hearts looking for rest, and we pray that we would find it this morning in you and in your Son, Jesus Christ, that your Holy Spirit would speak to us this morning as we come to your word, and that you would teach us to rest in Jesus, and we pray all this in his precious name, amen. Amen. We've looked over the last few weeks at this, this week in which God created the world. In six days, God formed and he filled the universe. And at the end of the sixth day, it was finished. And as we just read, on the seventh day, God stopped working. He rested. And I want us to consider here at the outset why God did it that way. Why, why six days of work and why one day of rest? Couldn't God have made the world in four days, or in ten days, or in a year? Could he have made the world in one day? Yeah. Amen. Of course, he could have done any of those things. But he chose to make the world in six days. Now, did God, was he exhausted at the end of the week? <laughs> Is that why he rested on the seventh day? Was he worn out and he needed a break? No, we know God is all-powerful. He does not grow weary or tired. And yet he set apart the seventh day as a day of rest, and he blesses it. He made it holy. So why did God do this? Why did he order it in this way? I want us to understand, I think it's actually for our sake. We see earlier in Genesis 1 that on the fourth day when God created the, the stars of the heavens and the sun and the moon and all the lights, um, in Genesis 1.14, God said, Let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night, and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and years, and let them be lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light upon the earth. And it was so. So that God created the, the heavenly spheres, the sun, the moon, the stars, to, to mark out time for us, right? Days by the rotation of the earth. Years by the rotation of the earth around the sun, right? Months by the movements of the moon. And weeks, we don't have a, a weekly moon or anything like that, but weeks, weeks too God created but weeks he created by his example. Right? 
that he worked in six days and he rested on the seventh as a way of setting forth a pattern for us. God didn't need to rest on the seventh day, but we need rest. <laughs> and so he set aside the seventh day for rest. We see, first of all, that he finished his work. He, he stopped working in verse 2 of Genesis 2. On the seventh day, God finished his work that he had done, and he rested on the seventh day. Again, we're not talking about recovering strength here. God, God was not weakened after his creation. The word can simply be translated, he ceased to work. He ceased from the work that he was doing, and he did not work on, on the seventh day. And not only did he stop working, but he specifically set aside the day. Verse 3, God blessed the seventh day. And this is the third blessing God has given in creation. First, he, he, he gave a blessing over the fish of the seas and the, the birds of the air. And he, he blessed man and woman when they were created. He gave a blessing over them. And then here he's actually blessing a day. Blesses the seventh day. He didn't bless the other days. Not that they aren't good, right? At the end of each day, he said, yeah, that's good, that's good, that's good. On the seventh day, he blessed the seventh day, and we're told that he made it holy. He made it holy, or he sanctified it. To, to be holy means to be set apart for a purpose. So God sanctifies this day. He sets it apart for a particular purpose, and that purpose is rest. Now, we don't have a specific invitation from God or even a specific application here in Genesis 2. We're just told what God did. He rested, and he blessed the day, and he made it holy. And so what I'd like to do is, is to take this as our jumping off point and to now trace this idea of Sabbath rest through the rest of Scripture and to ask, how across Scripture, across space and time, has God invited his people to join him in his rest? And so we're going to look first at how God laid out the Sabbath for Israel in the Old Covenant. Then we're going to look at how Jesus fulfills the idea of Sabbath, that for us in the New Covenant, actually Jesus is our Sabbath. And finally, we're going to ask, what, if any, implications does the ha Sabbath have for how we lay out our week? Okay, so that's kind of the, where we're going to go. Start with Israel, then go to Jesus, and then we'll finish by asking, sort of practically, are there any implications for Sabbath in our lives? So let's start by turning to Exodus 20. Exodus 20, and, and here we have the, the giving of the Ten Commandments. And this is right at the beginning of the existence of Israel as a nation. And what God is doing is he's laying out the ground rules. This is how you're supposed to live. And this is sort of the very beginning of, of the law. And the law is, is, um, is quite exhaustive as you go, move through Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy, right? God's, God's quite particular about the way his people were supposed to live in the Old Covenant. Um, and a lot of that law we understand, and we'll talk more about this as we go, a lot of that law was fulfilled by Christ. And so we're no longer bound by the ceremonial and the civil law. But here in the Ten Commandments, and there's some disagreement among Christians about exactly how to understand the, the Ten Commandments, but I understand the Ten Commandments as, as indicating um, moral law 
um, that what we find in the Ten Commandments isn't stuff that changes, even as the nation of Israel no longer exists as a nation, right? Israel no longer exists as a nation, but for us it's still wrong to murder because that actually has to do with the very heart of God. Um, it's, it's still wrong for us to lie and to steal, right? These things are true. They actually speak to something deep about the moral character of God. We can eat pork now in the New Covenant, right? Because that, that doesn't speak to the, 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 at bottom, the moral character of God. But here in the Ten Commandments, I think we find commandments which are, which are somewhat transcendent. In the fourth commandment, we find God laying out to Israel how they're supposed to keep Sabbath. So in Exodus 20, verse 8, we find the Sabbath commandment. And God begins by telling Israel, remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. Keep it holy. Listen to the, for that language of holy. What's, what's being riffed on there? It's hearkening all the way back to Genesis 2. What did God do with the seventh day? He made it holy. And so here in the fourth commandment, um, God, through Moses, is telling the people, the Sabbath day, you're, you're to keep it holy. God made it holy. Now you treat it like it's holy. Six days shall you labor and do all your work, but the seventh day is a Sabbath to the Lord your God. On it you shall not do any work, you or your son or your daughter, your male servant or your female servant, or your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For, and here's the explanation for why Israel is supposed to keep this command, for in six days the Lord made heaven and earth, the sea and all that is in them, and rested on the seventh day. Therefore, the Lord blessed the Sabbath day and made it holy. So verse 11 should sound familiar to you because that's almost verbatim ripped right out of Genesis 2. Right? So the foundation for this command is actually, is actually from the, the foundations of creation. Right? That Israel is to, is to set aside a day as holy for rest because that's how God made the universe. But for Israel, Sabbath was more than just rest. Um, turn forward with me to Exodus 31. Exodus 31. Under the Mosaic Covenant, um, the, the Sabbath was more than just a gift, a day of rest. It was also a sign of their covenant with God. In Exodus 31, and beginning in verse 12, the Lord said to Moses, You are to speak to the people of Israel and say, Above all, you shall keep my Sabbaths, for this is a sign between me and you throughout your generations, that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. You shall keep the Sabbath because it is holy for you. Everyone who profanes it shall be put to death. Whoever does any work on it, that soul shall be cut off from among his people. So for the people of Israel under this covenant made um, under Moses, um, the Sabbath is more than just a day of rest. It's actually a covenant sign. It's a sign of their relationship to God. And notice the language of holiness here. Um, in, in verse 13, 
This is a sign between me and you throughout your generations that you may know that I, the Lord, sanctify you. I'm making you holy, Israel. I'm setting you apart for my purposes. You're my people. I'm your God. I'm making you holy. You shall keep the Sabbath because it's holy for you. In other words, because you're a holy people, holy unto me, you set aside the Sabbath day as holy, as a sign that you're, you've been set apart. Um, and so for Israel, there's, there's actually more to Sabbath than just rest. This is a covenant sign. And, and you can see that the Lord takes this seriously because the death penalty is involved for those who don't keep the Sabbath, which is a, a serious thing. But that's because involved in this idea of Sabbath in the Mosaic Covenant is the idea of being faithful to God, right? It's tied with their covenant obligations. To break the Sabbath, in other words, is to say, I'm not of God's people. I'm not set apart. That's how it worked in the, in the Old Covenant. And if you flip forward to Jeremiah 17, um, in Jeremiah 17, God, through the prophet Jeremiah, is warning the people of Israel to keep the Sabbath. And, and the warning, because Israel was not good at keeping the Sabbath. As you, as you read through the Old Testament, Israel, Israel wasn't good at keeping much of God's law, actually. Um, and they were constantly wandering from, from God's commands. And in Jeremiah 17, God basically threatens the people. Verse 27, if you do not listen to me, to keep the Sabbath day holy and not to bear a burden and enter the gates of Jerusalem on the Sabbath day, then I will kindle a fire in its gates and it shall devour the palaces of Jerusalem and shall not be quenched. So this is promise of judgment on the people. If you continue in your rebellion and you don't keep the Sabbaths, your nation will fall. And eventually this is exactly what happens. Judgment comes upon the people because they were not keeping their obligations to God in the Sabbath command or in any of the commandments. So we see that in the Old Covenant, this, this idea of this Sabbath command is a very serious thing, punishable by death and punishable by judgment on the nation if the nation wholesale abandoned the keeping of the Sabbath. So here's where a, an interesting question comes in for us as Christians, because we as Christians don't observe the Mosaic Sabbath. We do not set aside Saturday, the seventh day, as a day that's holy, a day of rest. And so the question is, what changed, right? What happened between all this language about keeping the Sabbath in the Old Covenant and the church in the New Covenant? And the answer is Jesus. So let's turn to Colossians, the book of Colossians. I apologize, we'll be jumping all around this morning, but I want us to get an idea of Sabbath through the whole of Scripture. Um, Colossians chapter 2. Colossians chapter 2. And this is the Apostle Paul. And, and as you read the letters of Paul, he's almost constantly dealing with problems. Um, and, and here he's, he's addressing an issue that arose in the early church, where in the early church you had... Jews, people who'd been keeping the law of Moses their whole life, who had come to Christ, and there's also these Gentiles, these Greek-speaking people, who'd never worshipped God according to the Mosaic Covenant, but they'd come to know Jesus and believe in Jesus, 
And so you've got one group of Christians, many of whom are still keeping the law of Moses, and another group of Christians who aren't making any attempt to do that. And so there's all kinds of um, conflict in the early church over this issue of how much, if any, of the Mosaic law should Christians be required to keep? And Paul addresses this question in Colossians 2, in verse 16, when he says, Therefore, let no one pass judgment on you in questions of food and drink, or with regard to a festival, or a new moon, or a Sabbath. Okay, so he starts out just by making this statement. He lists a few things. Food and drink, as we know there's all kinds of um, regulations on eating and drinking in the Old Covenant. Um, it's the kosher laws. And then the festivals and new moons and Sabbaths, these are ways of ordering weeks and years, right? Festivals that the people of Israel were required to keep under the, the Old Covenant. And Paul says, don't let anyone pass judgment on you on these questions. In other words, the, this is not an important question for you as Christians. Whether you decide you want to keep the Jewish Sabbath or not, which some early Christians did keep the Jewish Sabbath on Saturday, he's like, that's not, that doesn't matter. What you eat and drink, that doesn't matter. Don't let anyone pass judgment on you. Don't let anyone say you're not a good enough Christian because you don't keep Sabbath or because you eat pork. Why? Why does he say this? Verse 17, these are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. Shadow, substance. Keep these terms in your mind. This is really helpful in terms of understanding Old Testament relating to New Testament. Paul says these things, festivals, new moons, Sabbath, dietary restrictions, they're the shadow and the substance is Christ. And you can imagine on a street corner, if I was walking towards you and you're over here on the other side, you wouldn't be able to see me. But if there was a light behind me casting a shadow down on the ground, you'd actually see my shadow around the corner before I ever came around the corner. So before you ever saw me, you'd see a shadow of me, and you could probably tell by the shadow how fast I was moving and approximately how tall I am and, and a few things about me without actually seeing me. And so this is, this is the image that Paul's using to describe the Old Testament's relationship to the New Testament. He says these, these Old Testament laws, they're just a shadow of Jesus. These Old Testament laws, that's... That's the shadow of Jesus peeking around the corner. That's Jesus before Jesus came. Um, I'd encourage you to read the, the book of Hebrews on this question. The book of Hebrews is filled with examples where the writer of Hebrews takes an Old Testament idea in the Old Testament law and he says, and this was all about Jesus all along. So, for example, uh, the writer of Hebrews talks about the priests and the priests in Israel had this really important job of basically standing between God and the people and enabling the people to enter the presence of God and to have their sins forgiven. They made these sacrifices. And the writer of Hebrews says, these priests, really all along, they were pointing to our need for Jesus. These were just shadows. We don't need priests anymore because Jesus is the one priest we need. And the same with the sacrifices. All those old covenant sacrifices all along, they were just teaching us that Jesus was right around the corner. 
that really Jesus is the sacrifice we need. He's the perfect sacrifice. He's the perfect temple. Jesus is the substance of which the old covenant was just a shadow. And Paul says it's the same thing with the Sabbath, which is really interesting. He lists these things, right? Food and drink, festivals, new moon, Sabbaths. These things are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance belongs to Christ. So he says, he's saying all that detailed, all those detailed Sabbath requirements, those were just a shadow of Jesus. Jesus, in other words, is the substance of the Sabbath. Jesus is the substance of our rest. Now, this is one of those passages, and there are many, where I wish I could have the Apostle Paul in my study for a few minutes to be able to ask him a few questions, because he does not elaborate on this. He moves on, and I, I wish he'd give me a paragraph or two on, on what exactly it means that Jesus is the Sabbath. He's the substance of the Sabbath. But there are some clues in the New Testament as to exactly how Jesus is our rest. So I want to look at a couple of those, those clues. Turn with me to Matthew 11. Matthew 11. And you've probably heard me quote this passage before because it's one of my favorites. Matthew 11. And verse 28. It's actually just before Jesus has a short discourse on the Sabbath. Matthew 11, verse 28, and this is the invitation of Jesus. Come to me, all you who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Aren't those wonderful words from Jesus? This is just a, this is a glowing invitation where Jesus is saying, in effect, I'm the rest you need. You come to me and I will give you rest. Jesus is the rest God is inviting us into. It's only in Jesus that we can ultimately find rest. And the rest of the New Testament lays out precisely how that works in all of its intricacies, right? How does Jesus give us rest? Well, you who are Christians know, right? How has Jesus given you rest? Well, in forgiving your sins and allowing you to rest from your works, before we understood that salvation was by grace, how were we trying to get into heaven by works, dead works? And what a heavy burden legalism is to be trying to work into God's good graces by trying hard. That won't get us very far. The weight just gets heavier and heavier and heavier. And Jesus lifts that burden at the cross. When we come to him by faith and ask, Lord, forgive me, he says, okay. Sin gone as far as the east is from the west. 
And it's only when we begin to understand that, to really understand that Jesus justifies us, that Jesus makes us totally righteous by his finished work on the cross, that we can begin to rest in our relationship with God as our Father, knowing that relationship is not dependent on anything we can do. Entirely dependent on what Jesus has done. It's like if you've got some big project that you realize you forgot about and you're like, oh my word, I'm never going to be able to finish it in time. And you mention it to your spouse and they say, I took care of it. It's all done. I know, I know the guests are going to be over in 10 minutes, but I already did the dishes. <laughs> it's all set. You can rest. I'm sure you could begin to think through the implications of this in the whole of Christian life, how Jesus gives us rest. He, he allows us to rest from our anxieties. Right? Be anxious for nothing, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, let your request be known to God and the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. <coughs> Jesus invites us into a, into a rest with regard to our circumstances, that we can actually trust that God is good and that for those who love him and are called according to his good purpose, he works all things for good. So that when we're worried about our life or when we're worried about our needs or when we're worried about our family or the circumstances around us or when we're worried about a war happening halfway around the world, we can actually bring those things to God and let him hold on to them. And we can rest. Right? Carrying that heavy burden, you take it off. He's like, I'll, I'll carry it. I'll take that for you. That's real rest. We could keep going with the implications. One more implication, one more way Jesus gives us rest is, is we can rest um, from our own f trying to figure out what's right and what's wrong. Which maybe we don't think about that as rest, but we live in a society that's incredibly anxious, whether they know it or not, trying to figure out what's right and what's wrong. And we live in a time of, of extreme moral confusion. I think a lot of people in our society are, are really confused as to what's right and what's wrong. And hearing one, one thing from certain arenas and then seeing one thing that's sort of obvious about human nature and wondering, how, how do I make sense of all of this? And it's really hard to be at rest when you're just a, a ship out in the sea without an anchor, without a sail, just adrift. That's where a lot of people are today. And there's a sure and steady anchor in the word of God and in knowing Jesus and in actually meeting our God and our creator in the person of Jesus Christ who actually lays out very clearly for us what human life is supposed to be, what the good life is what it means to fear God and to obey his commandments. And that in this path, it's not like God's pattern for us is restrictive, it's actually life-giving, right? In knowing him is fullness of joy. And there's a real rest in that, right? Not constantly trying to rethink what's right and what's wrong, but just trusting God has spoken and God is good. There's a real rest there. 
And the rest that we have in Christ doesn't stop in this life. We know we'll never fully be at rest in this life. God can give us great rest in Jesus in our hearts as we come to know him. But we are fallen creatures. We still struggle with sin. We live in a world that's fallen. And we long for a kind of final rest, an ultimate rest. And that too is promised to us in Jesus. Turn with me to Hebrews. Hebrews. And we're not going to have time to do this passage justice. But Hebrews 3 and 4, I'd encourage you to read Hebrews 3 and 4 this week. Um, where the writer of Hebrews talks about the idea of rest. And the writer of Hebrews quotes from Psalm 95, which we read at the beginning of our service this morning. And the final line of Psalm 95 has to do with rest. In Hebrews 3, verse 11, that's where it's quoted. As I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. What's God talking about here? So this psalm, Psalm 95, was written by the pen of David as he was inspired by the Holy Spirit. And he's referring back to events that happened in the Exodus. Okay, So all the way back in the Exodus, the first generation of, of Israelites that came out of Egypt, they were, went out into the wilderness, God made a covenant with them. And what happened? They rebelled. They didn't keep covenant with God. They disobeyed God. They didn't believe God. And what God did, verse 11, I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And the rest that's referred to here is rest in the promised land. Okay? Rest in the promised land. So um, that first generation didn't get rest in the promised land. The next generation did get a kind of rest in the promised land. They were brought into the promised land and they were able to live there. But what's interesting is that the writer of Hebrews says in verse 8, Hebrews 4, verse 8, For if Joshua had given them rest, God would not have spoken of another day later on. Okay, The time horizons get confusing here. But what's going on is that David in Psalm 95 is warning the people of his day who live in the land, who have the land, you don't be faithless like those people Israel back in your generations ago because if you're faithless, you won't enter God's rest either. And they're looking around at the land and they're like, we're already in the land. And what the writer of Hebrews is pointing out is he says, Joshua, who brought them into the land, hadn't actually given them rest. Even once Israel was in the promised land, that wasn't yet the final rest that God had for them. Verse 9, So then there remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. There remains a Sabbath rest for the people of God. In other words, we haven't yet gotten to final full rest. There's still some more rest to come. There's more Sabbath that God has to invite us into that we haven't yet received. And the Sabbath I think he's referring to here is the Sabbath 
that Christ will usher in at his return. That when Christ comes in judgment and rids the world of sin and recreates the heavens and the earth and makes all things new again and wipes every tear from every eye and sin will be no more and pain will be no more and death itself will die, then we can know real rest. Then we can know real rest. Hebrews 11, Hebrews 11 and verse 13 the writer of Hebrews is constantly talking about how the people in the Old Covenant still hadn't gotten what God had really promised. Hebrews 11, verse 13, These all, meaning all these Old Testament believers, they died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. Even Israel in the land was still seeking a homeland, still seeking rest in the promised land. If they had been thinking of that land from which they'd gone out, they would have had opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country that is a heavenly one. Therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. I think you could almost read that sentence and substitute in the word rest. As it is, they desire a better rest that is a heavenly one. There is a Sabbath rest that God is preparing for us in eternity. And that is a great, a great hope. A great promise because in this world even as we experience a measure of God's Sabbath rest a measure of God's peace we still groan our bodies groan in pain our hearts groan in sin and in grief and we long for final eternal rest and that rest we will only see on the far side of the return of Christ and what a hope it is that we will find that rest. So where does God invite his people into Sabbath rest in Scripture? Well, we saw in the Old Covenant that God gave the people this sign of rest, that God was inviting his people into rest on the Sabbath day. And that shadow was really all about Jesus, who is our Sabbath. He is our rest. And in him, in knowing him, we can find rest of heart. And in him, we can also find the promise of, of eternal rest. And finally, I want to I ask the question, what sort of implications, if any, does this idea of Sabbath, this rest of God on the seventh day, have for us in the new covenant? Now, we know from what Paul said um, that the the Sabbath is not binding in all of its particularities. Um, We're not bound to keep the Sabbath command as the Jews were in the Old Covenant. Um, but I'm inclined to see, and different Christians would disagree on this, but I'm inclined to see on this seventh day the establishment of a creation ordinance, of something that transcends even the Mosaic Covenant. Um, 
not that we're still commanded to keep rest on the seventh day, but that it's actually a, a pattern knitted deep into the fabric of who we are and of the universe that we need to work and we need to rest. And that on some kind of weekly pattern. Okay. And this is something that's not necessarily specified in the New Testament. So this is somewhat speculative. Okay. Um, but the, the church across the ages has often seen a connection between the Lord's Day, Sunday, and a kind of new Sabbath. Not a new kind of legalism, right? Not keeping Sabbath like in the Old Covenant shadows, right? But as in we need a day for rest. Um, in the New Testament, one thing that is clear is that the Lord's Day is a special day. In Revelation 1, the Apostle John mentions the Lord's Day, um, that the vision he received of the Revelation came to him on the Lord's Day, which is Sunday, the day Jesus rose from the grave. That's why it's the Lord's Day. And then both in Acts chapter 20 and in 2 Corinthians 16, there's indications that Christians had set aside the Lord's Day in a special way, the first day of the week, as a day of worship. Okay. And even if we don't grant any kind of um, Sabbath rest on the Lord's Day, even if we just set it aside as a day of worship, this is the day we, we come and gather together and worship God. If this is Jesus' day, if this is the Lord's day, then this is going to be a day of rest for us because our rest is in Jesus. Right? Our rest is in Jesus. And so if nothing else, we should understand that the, the Lord's day, the first day of, of the week, we should set apart in a, in a special way um, for worship and for remembrance of Jesus and for our rest in him. And I think practically speaking, it's, it's wise, and I think it's a helpful impl implication from the creation order to understand that we shouldn't be working every day. Just practically speaking, that's a quick way to burn out real quick. Right? If you're busy with work every day and you never stop to take a breath, you're going to slowly kill yourself. Because we're not like God. We're creatures. We do need rest. Right? And um, it's sort of a, it's sort of a um, helpful and a practical and a sensical thing to do, if possible, to set aside Sunday as that day. Because it's already set aside for worship. And it makes sense for Christians, and many Christians have across the years set, set aside Sunday as a day for rest. I'm not going to check my email. I'm not going to go into the office. This is a day of rest. Right? And different Christians have to work this out. We have liberty in, in how we do this. But it's wise that we take time for rest. Um, and it's a way of acknowledging that we're not God. Right? It's the same thing we do every time we hit the pillow at night. We go to sleep, and we close our eyes, and we're no longer in control of everything, and we wake up, and the world's still here. We don't hold it all together. God does. Right? And rest is a way of saying, God does not hold, I mean, I don't hold my life together. Right? God does. And um, it's worth taking a day off. Let's pray together.
Father, we thank you for the invitation we find in Scripture to rest. We thank you for the tremendous rest we found in Jesus, rest from our works, rest from our anxieties, real rest, and the promise of eternal rest in you. We are a weary people, a tired people, an exhausted people, and we long for rest. We pray, Lord, that you would give us real experience of rest in this life. I pray for those who may not know that rest, Lord Jesus, that you would introduce yourself to them and that in your finished work, we would all be able to find rest. And I pray too, Lord, just on a practical level, that as we think about our schedules, as we think about what we're doing, um, that you would convict us, Lord, either if we're being slothful or if we're being greedy with how much we do that if we're doing too much, you would show us and that you would help us to take a rest to acknowledge that you hold things together, not us. And I pray, Lord, if we're being slothful, because we know you set aside six days for work, that you would teach us to work hard and to work unto the Lord to maintain that balance of rest and of work. We thank you, Lord, for your kind design in all that you've made pray that you'd help us this week to rest in Christ, even as we work unto the Lord. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. I'm going to go to the Lord's table now, and I'll have the, the deacons come forward. Um, this table, this meal that we share together to remember Jesus in his death and resurrection is, is itself a table of rest. We don't come here to work. This is, in fact, not a potluck where you bring anything or contribute anything, okay? Just bring yourself. Jesus has laid the table. Right? Jesus is enough. His work is enough. His work is complete. And we come to this table not to add anything to Jesus, but to say, I need Jesus. I do not have it together. I need him, and he is more than enough, and he is more than enough. I like to mention every time we come to the table um, that this is a, this is a family table. Uh, this is a table to be shared by the people of God, those who know Jesus and have believed on his name. And so I'd encourage you, if you're not a Christian, that you'd refrain from taking the table. You can just fold your hands in your lap, and the ushers will pass you by. Um, but I would want you to know if you're not a Christian, the invitation is always open. It's not as if this, it's not as if Jesus is, is an exclusive club. Right? Any who would come to Jesus in repentance and in faith, come, right? That's the invitation. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. And that's the rest we celebrate here at this table. Paul, in his letter to the Corinthians, warns that whoever therefore eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. This is a joyful celebration, but we want to take it seriously as we come to the table. I'd just like to mention, after we eat and drink, we'll stand together and we'll sing, Thank You, Lord, and the number for that song is in your bulletin. If you don't know it, you can look it up in the hymnal. I just want to read this passage from John 6, beginning in verse 35. 
Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me, and yet you do not believe. All that the Father gives me will come to me, and whoever comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing of all that he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him should have eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. Let's proclaim together the life that we have in Jesus in his death, and in his resurrection. Kevin, would you pray for us as we go to eat the bread?
continue to pray for us as we go to Pentecost. Proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Praise the Lord. Praise the Lord. Jesus Christ, our Savior, died, was raised from the dead. He is seated at the right hand of the Father, and he is coming again. Hallelujah. Praise the Lord. Let's stand together. And we'll sing, thank you, Lord. Thank you, Lord, for saving.
As you go from here, may Christ be your rest. In your working, in your waking, as you rise up, as you lie down, may you find together our Sabbath rest in Jesus. And may the Lord bless you and keep you. And may the Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious unto you. And may the Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace.